show. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. We're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water. Leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Is this show killing people? Bad, 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 bad. Something good has to be coming. I'm so proud of us. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? I have so many questions right off the bat. For those of you who are like, my God, Michelle, you're too much. Chill out. It's McDonald's fault. When will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm. This one's a challenge. Both of my eyes are twitching. Hello. Hello. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Agreement with Catherine, me, and Michelle, me. And this is our podcast. Every other week, give or take, we bring you three things. And those things are a weird thing, a pop culture thing, and a research thing. Then we fit them all together. We try to make sense of them. We don't know what each other is bringing. That's what we do. Because speaking of episodes, we are on 44. And then next to that, you go first on okay. episode 44. We are six away from 50. That's it's very that's exciting. Wild. I can't believe we've done this. I do have a note next to that saying, do not forget I have our extra weird. These day. things. We did get a listener call. Hi. So I just wanted to know, do house cats react the same way to obsession as tigers do? <laughs> and for those of you who are listening to this as a podcast, which is everyone except Catherine, um, <laughs> <laughs> these things is a small vial of Calvin Klein's obsession that arrived in the mail for me and a cat toy. And I am going to open them up. And put them together. I've been I've been playing the new Zelda game, so I'm thinking about it as melding the tools because that's a feature in the new Zelda game. Um, and and I have some a, a variety of cats near me. I think if I call them, I'll get some more. And we are going to see if this is a callback uh, to a previous weird thing about how scientists used Calvin Klein's obsession to attract big cats in the wild. And we are going to see if there's any response from my little house cats yes, to Calvin because... Klein's obsession on this cat toy. I'll, I'll narrate this because it is not a visual medium. Michelle that was, that was is a lot. spilled a lot. You're going to get mauled by house I'm, cats. I hear them coming through the window. Ah! Oh no, Michelle's <laughs> face. Her beautiful face. No, no. Why? Oh my gosh, she's so strong. <laughs> Michelle is now fanning herself with the cat toy that is, oh, she's passed out. No. Okay. She's calling for the cat. I've got some cats. I threw the cat toy. There's my Aww. room is a Oh, they are interested in it. Yes, he's definitely interested. He's, he's oh oh uh, he's, oh no, still interested. Oh, batting it, batting it, batting it. Oh, and another cat is approaching. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna toss it toward him. Let's see. Oh, two cats. Second cat. They are very interested in the smell. They're smelling it. It's a lot of smell. Well, I mean, to be fair, it is a very strong scent. They're probably like, what have you done? <laughs> yeah, it's not whether they like it or not. It's just that it is there. And yeah. oh. oh, well, all three cats have come and sniffed it. So, and one is laying. Do your cats, are they responsive to catnip? Um, one of them is for sure. The kittens, it's hard to tell because they're just so wild all the time that I'm like, yeah, that's just sort of how you act. So I don't know. Um, Because the one cat is pretty chill next to it. Yeah. But I can't say, I can say they were all interested, but I can't say there was any sort of frenzy or rolling in it. Yeah. And I'll keep it, if if anything starts to develop over here, I'll keep an eye out and keep you posted throughout the Ooh, that's exciting. Yes, throughout this whole podcast, you might get a breaking news alert. So, okay, caller, I think we can answer your question definitively with, we don't (laughs) They don't dislike the smell. I think that's safe to say. Yeah, yeah. And they did, I mean, they they did all come up to it. Even the one who didn't see me, like, throw it, like, came into the room and went straight to it. So I feel like there was, there's at least an attraction to the scent. They're attracted to the smell, which is yeah. basically yeah. what we said about Tigers and Calvin Klein. I feel like we're scientists yes. and there are no flaws in our methodology. Nothing, nothing. completely control. Yeah, no further steps needed. Up. Yeah. You're welcome. Give us Nobel Prize. Oh my God, I smell so <laughs> I'm just <laughs> taking a drink and my hands are covered in obsession. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, why do I smell like the '90s? Oh, um, I am. I'm gonna say that's not the weirdest. That's not the weirdest thing you're gonna be getting in the mail from me. Oh gosh, upcoming. Okay. Um, I hope I'll... you. Re- I hope. I hope what I send you, you remember, like why I'm sending it to you, because otherwise, I look like a cold stone psychopath. Well, I'll be. I. I mean, I. I'll know that that's not true. So I'll be like, there must be something in my memory well, deep. <laughs> you can report hey listeners come back next week find or out. next fortnight and find out what i'm talking about yeah aren't you intrigued so, i'm intrigued is your weird thing my weird thing is did you ever go to the creamery with me when you visited it's like the ice cream shop at the corner by by the park oh, yeah. so um there is this creamery that was an ice cream shop that used like local to to the state, not like to St. Louis, because there's not a whole lot of cows in St. Louis. Not a lot of dairy uh, farms <laughs> in the city. But local to the state ice cream. It was really good. It was run by this um older couple who were very kind and were always in the store themselves, like scooping the ice cream. They hired lots of like young college students and high school students. And it was just it was a good vibe, right? Um, so it closed last year in 2022. Um, and it, it was made us really sad because that was like our local mm. ice cream place. That was where we went. But they were retiring. And it's like, we can't hate on that, right? Like, you had a successful business. And there was this exciting announcement that a boardwalk waffles and ice cream would be opening in the same place within a couple of months. And it was like, the announcement was made in like March. And it was like, they'll be ready for ice cream season. And we we're like, okay, cool. Like, we lost cool. our neighborhood ice cream shop. But there'll still be an ice cream shop there. And Boardwalk Waffles and Ice Cream is a a chain that there's like four or five locations around the area and they make, um, they like use like Belgian waffles and make like these fancy huge ice cream sandwiches out of them with all these different flavors. 
so we just sort of waited for that to happen and then it didn't happen um but there was like paper over the windows like there was construction going on but the creamery sign was still hanging up and like no signs came up saying that there was something come I was like this is just kind of weird and yeah. then I was up at the Fox the Fox Theater on the other side of the city and I saw a boardwalk waffles and ice cream that was a, a location that said it was opening there and it's technically on the same street I mean several miles apart but but still I was like those are pretty close locations so like maybe that maybe something fell through with the other one and they they decided to do this location instead and I'm like oh I wonder what's going to be at the, this corner store because it's like prime real estate in a really good location yeah. and like I've just been really curious about what's going to open in this place that's so close to my house that we can walk to um and nothing and nothing and nothing and then a giant sign goes up on the side of the building that says like giant banner that was professionally printed that says like we apologize for our corner store we are working hard to get you a business that is viable and will work for our community and then it was signed by the the last name of the couple that owned the ice cream store so it turns out like on a big professional banner yes huh okay so so they own that whole building including like they rent out part of it to a coffee shop and there's some apartments upstairs everybody has said that they are fantastic landlords and that they're great to work for and with and like nothing negative has been said about this couple and they they were on like the business district for the street and like they really care about the neighborhood and making sure that things go well and so coffee shop is nice yes I have every time I go in, there are at least three people reading Franz Fanon every time, which I love. It's like they have a quota to meet. Like, no, no, you can't come in until we get another one. (laughs) I was like, this is curious. This is this is an interesting goings on. Um, And then the Riverfront Times, which is like our local free newspaper that is sometimes a bit gossipy, but, you know, it is genuine reporting. They publish this article on Tuesday, April 4th, titled Boardwalk Waffles Expansion Plans Are Embroiled in Lawsuits. And so they, I'm I'm looking at it now, the owner of Boardwalk Waffles and Ice Cream has been sued because the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, this often happens, like the Riverfront Times reports something um, that's pretty well-researched and detailed. And then our actual like newspaper the St. Louis Post-Dispatch will pick up the story and add depth to it. So like a couple days later, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch ran a story with even more details. So the owner of this Boardwalk Waffles and Ice Cream has been sued more than 40 times for not paying his bills. So he has like these wild lawsuits that say oh, that man. he like he, he's he's just I don't understand why anyone would do business with someone after looking at the things he's been sued for. Um, and so let me just see some of the details. In January 2022, he was sued for $25,000 in rent for its Maplewood location. Um, two months later, the one by the Fox Theater alleged the company leased space from them and then missed multiple rent payments. In August 2022, court files indicate the two parties in the Maplewood suit reached a settlement, but the judgment was stayed months later the landlord filed again in court and last month earned another default judgment but he says that like a lot of these people are like yeah i got a judgment but then i never got any money and how does this person keep getting spaces to rent right um so now they say here 10 months have passed and the couple recently hung a banner on their building atop where the creamery once was friends and neighbors it begins we apologize for our corner shop and appreciate your patience as we work to bring in a viable business to serve you 
McCreary tells the Riverfront Times that he wanted to apologize to the neighborhood for the space being vacant for so long. He says he knows that having an empty retail space at the entryway to the business district hurts other businesses as well. I felt I probably should have put the sign up sooner. The damage to the neighborhood really hurts. Um, and so they say that this guy Moore signed the lease with them. And he wrote rent checks for $4,000 each with each check dated on the first of every month. He said the checks for July and August bounced. And then he later said that October, November, and December bounced as well. And that he was told by a, an assistant circuit attorney that as a matter of policy, city prosecutors do not pursue criminal prosecutions over post-dated checks that bounce. The legal part of it is a mess. Um, but now they're saying that he's refusing to leave the building. So he's been trying oh, to evict what? them and they won't they won't leave the building. And so he hasn't been able to like it, nothing has happened with it. Like they said that like his physical stuff is inside of the building, um, but they can't get him out. And I mean, this has been like this story broke now over a month and a half ago and the building is still just sitting there vacant. And it looks like there's another civil suit over another one of the locations in a different St. Louis neighborhood that they say he hasn't been paying any rent there either. So it sounds like he owes like hundreds of thousands of dollars across different locations and is just not paying for them. And so, yeah, that's my weird thing is that. And there's just like somehow, because what the problem is, is bounce checks. Like there's nothing that can be done. I mean, that is really frustrating, though, that even if you win the suit, that doesn't mean you get the money back. But the fact that they can't get him out of there. And so uh. there, there was a bar called the the Tin Can that had a lo three different locations. And one of them was in like Columbia, Missouri. And this guy was supposed to run one of the locations, but then did the same thing, like didn't didn't pay. And and it kind of like just tanked all the businesses because they got into so and like when the, you talk to like there was somebody was interviewing the people about that and they're like i can't handle this negativity like i can't i can't handle it anymore like we tried to get our money and i just i had to just like let it go because and i'm like oh. how can you just keep doing that to people like i feel like if i just went up to somebody right now and was like hey can i just have your building that like even though i've never scammed anyone out of money they'd be like no you yeah you know. say i'm just i'm very upset yeah because yeah like you said it it could hurt other businesses like they were worried about and also to have I, the want, I want some ice cream <laughs> and most importantly michelle doesn't have <laughs> anywhere to get her ice cream i feel like with the press something has to give right but you would hope that it seems like that's at least in the past what would have happened. Where are you going for ice cream? You're just not eating ice cream. Um, we there's a little place. I mean, there's a there's a gelateria within walking distance, which is good. But gelato and ice cream are not not the same, same thing. Same. Like it's a different different mood, different thing. Gelateria feels like oh, I want like an elevated treat. Like I'm like no, I want a bowl full of like stuff with crumbled cookies in it. Like this is, I don't want to feel elevated and fancy with my tiny little spoon like i want to dig right. in it's, it's the tiny little spoon above all else yeah like i'm a little little cup my little my spoon. dainty spoon and take my little dainty bites no. it's not that's that's not always the vibe not the vibe sometimes you need to grab a whole scoop of ice cream with your bare hands and then everyone looks at you <laughs> like you're a psychopath um not that i know that from <laughs> not that that's related on real events <laughs> um I'm not going to go into any more detail except that Catherine didn't socialize much 
from 2020 to 2022 and forgot what it was to be in the world and found out fast when Michelle looked at her horrified as did everyone else in a Jenny's ice cream shop. <laughs> but it's fine. That's what friends do. It they, was not they... it was not a dainty spoon situation is what we're trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I had been in a gelato place, it would not have happened. And that's the problem with gelato. <laughs> one up. I like, yeah. I'm good gelato is good, but it's not always the thing. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, I like that weird thing. It feels specific. It feels local. And I feel like my weird thing is just out of time and place, but and I couldn't even find where I heard it from. I did you do made research. It up. I made this up. No, <laughs> I did research it. I hate it. I hate where I actually I did verify it. I did not find it where I verified it because I found the verification from the Joe Rogan show. Um, admit it you're listening to joe rogan every night uh, before bed uh, no (laughs) do you know what's funny and this sounds like i'm almost trying to deny it too hard but i fall asleep every night to pod save america which i think is so in opposition to falling asleep to joe so can we just talk about pod save for a minute though you're still able to listen to it like i fall asleep to the most recent because i used to listen to pod save america a lot but i feel like they've like I feel like they've lost the center like the, oh yeah and they're just I, I don't know they're so like inside jokey but also yes. trying to be relevant and I'm like what's happening you all like I, I tried it's to listen not, to it recently and I just can't it's not what it was but I only listened to like the first 15 minutes mm. of the episode the first again 15 and minutes again are the best again, parts like where they just I, kind of like recap I feel like when they try to get into the deep analysis they're just not able to like get there the way they used to i'm usually okay. asleep by then i'm not, try- <laughs> so not trying to bash pod save i used to like them a lot i just feel like they need a maybe my research thing i'm going to bring them back up cool you're just you're just trying to help them be yeah the best them. they can be yeah. i want to so, see you return to your glory it was um mike judge the movie maker director writer was inter- having an interview with joe rogan quite a while ago so i verified this it's real I don't know where it got into my brain. So, Idiocracy, the movie I was Idiocracy. Say, that's, that's the Idiocracy guy, right? Okay. I was about to look that up to make sure I wasn't yep. wrong, but no, I don't have to. This is just a little fun fact. The movie was made for not a huge budget, and the costume designer, whose name is Deborah McGuire, which I will say Mike Judge may be mad because he was giving this interview and talking about this thing she did, and he was like, what do you call it? Designer costume person and didn't know her name which made me feel kind of gross because it's yeah. someone he worked with really closely but i looked at and it's easy to look up um deborah mcguire had a very 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 limited shoestring budget to do idiocracy and that's kind of a big ask because it needs to be futuristic but still have kind of a comic comedic sense and so they needed shoes and mike judge really really said you know we need shoes we can get for cheap we can't make them ourselves we can't fabricate them that's too expensive so we need to find shoes that we can make sure look stupid but look futuristic and that no one will really be wearing and so she said okay she went out she did research she found a small startup shoe company showed the shoes to mike judge and mike judge went but what if these become popular? And like, by the time the movie comes out, everyone's wearing them. 
because the movie was filmed in 2004 and came out in 2006. And she said, have you seen these shoes? No one would ever wear them. And so what are the shoes that look stupid and are cheap? And then ironically, do you know the answer? You just know what shoe. I just remember what shoes they're wearing. (gasps) You remember? Because that was, that to me was fascinating. I didn't remember. Fairly recently. So I think I noticed. I was like, oh, look what they're, yeah, yeah. Because you notice now, but when you watched it, like when it came out, you didn't notice because it just looked like stupid. Yeah. So it was Crocs. Everyone in Idiocracy is wearing Crocs. I just think that's really fun because they did become huge. They're so huge. I own Crocs. I don't, I'm not hating on Crocs. I love Crocs. I have a very great platform pair of Crocs that are comfy. That's my weird thing that idiocracy costume designer said, no one will ever wear these. Don't worry about it. They will look futuristic forever. And now they are the shoes of now. Of the f- pre-connection. I can't say what it is yet, but pre-connection. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to pop culture. So actually, the pre-connection was with my pop culture thing. Have you heard of the blog Paleo Future? No. Okay. So I can't remember where I... Oh, it was like a Medium post, and the author of Paleo Future had written the post, and so he had his information down at the bottom. I will admit that I have not subscribed to it, so I have not been able to read many of the articles in their entirety, which is totally fair. I believe writers should get paid for their work. So Paleo Future is a website that is a collection of the history of the future. I'm going to go to its about section and tell you a little bit about it real quick. By Matt Novak. He, Matt Novak writes and edits the Paleo Future blog without the help of any AI tools. Paleo Future is 100% human created content. Um, the blog was formerly at Smithsonian and then at Gizmodo. Um, he, so basically, he looks at the things that people said about the future in the past and like explores okay. what it people think the future was going to be and so like some oh, of that's the- such an amazing pre-connection wow yes. <laughs> so um like some of the things that are on here terrible predictions about COVID-19 the pandemic that's supposed to be over uh FAA releases new video about air taxi routes of the future um wild predictions for TV technology from 100 years ago But the one I'm going to share with you is my specific pop culture thing. I really just wanted to share with you that Paleo Future exists and that I think you should go check it out. Um, But this one is a collection in a newspaper from 1988 uh, where first graders were asked to predict the future, uh, specifically what robots would be doing. And so here is, it was the Lexington Herald Leader newspaper. And I just... This is, you know, I'm slightly younger than these kids. Like, I was only three in 1988, and they were first graders. So they're like, this is kids who were, like, maybe three or four years older than me. Um, And these are some of the things they had to say about what what it would be like in the future. My robot is green, and he cleans the dog. He also empties the trash. He also does homework. He's made of gears, cars, clock hands, cardboard boxes, the freezer, real rocket parts, tank parts, watches, trash cans, and a calendar. What a robot. Oh, what a robot. What a robot. I feel like if you replaced all of the things it's made of with lithium, the activities are pretty much there, right? (laughs) Lithium batteries. Yeah. I want my robot to do things for my mom and me. I want my robot to do my homework. I want my robot to make my bed. I want my robot to clean my room. 
oh my god i see a pattern they want the robot to do their homework these people are around 40 and now we have chat chat gpt <laughs> that it's it's a to b it's a direct line it, yeah here we go all it's these because, it's because kids. we made homework so miserable yeah here's another one right and all these worksheets and the 80s kids hated them and you get chat gpt thanks world Oh, so many of them. Oh, my God. I hadn't even noticed how many of them said that, but I would like him to wash the dishes. My robot can do my homework. I like red, <laughs> but he is blue. I would like it to clean my room. My robot has long hands. That's my robot. <laughs> That's my robot. Hit hit television show. That's my robot. My robot does everything. My robot does my homework. It cleans my room. Sometimes he dresses like Santa Claus. <laughs> um let's see there's another my robot will do my homework my robot is blue my robot will clean up my room there's just over and over again the, do my homework clean my room do my homework the clean specificity my room. of color is very interesting i want my robot to do my homework at school my robot is red and white and black and it looks like santa claus <laughs> but like was it oh, written in november it was published in january 1980 ah, so it was probably written yeah. it, was, it was probably like an end of year or like, you know, before Christmas break kind of thing. Um, there is a, a picture of a, a cowboy robot that a child oh. drew. Um, let me see if that one has if there's an explanation for why he's a cowboy. I don't think so. I think that's just what he looks like. It says ride him, cow robot. Oh, he's heavy, says the cow. But Michelle, what would your robot do? That, like my robot would clean my house so that I can do my homework. <laughs> the very first thing I thought of was clean my house. Yeah, absolutely. No, I saw a meme that was like, how did we get to a future where the robots do all the writing and painting and I still have to <gasps> like do the menial test? <laughs> like how yeah. who misunderstood this assignment so deeply? No, thank you. And I don't mean like a Roomba. That's not what I mean by clean my house. No. I mean, like, I don't want to have to think about my house. I want it to just, like, get up and it is clean. Yeah. I want the Jetsons-style house cleaning. Yeah. Which is, which is Rosie, right? Yeah. They have, they have a, a maid who's a robot. And then she, she manages, like, the other technological things. So, like. Okay. You know, she doesn't have to manually do all of it, right? Like So it's like when celebrities have a house manager. She's she's like the, the house man- manager. She's the tech, she's the house tech coordinator. And then that makes me feel better than I'm asking for a robot maid. I'm I'm asking for a house tech coordinator and all the tech for her to coordinate. Yeah. Sure. Easy. Give it to us. Stop Thank stop you. giving the robots the creative work. We want that. Give the robots the cleaning work. We don't want that. For a quick recommendation, I'm only 30 pages into this book and I am in love with it, but it's called Bubblegum and it's by Adam Levin, which is L-E-V-I-N. And it's basically a book that's set someone who's exactly the same age as these kids, right? Like he's about that age in 88. The book is taking place in 2013 and he's 38 in 2013, but um, it's a world in which the internet never happened. And instead, all of that kind of technology and energy went into making hyper-realistic, not, they're not robots, they're very organic, but they're designed pet animals that are kind of like, like you can hurt them and they can get hurt and they Aww. poop. So they're not just robots and they have an organic form, but it's all of the 
morals and ethics of like a Digimon in that world. Aww. But like everyone the, has one. The, like for real toys yes. that, like, like walked and they were really creepy. So like all of our energy went into the for real toys instead of the internet. Exactly. And it's just it's such a good book. That's fascinating. Yeah. I'm only 30 pages in, but I love it. Have you read The Humans by Matt Haig? No. Uh, have you read The Midnight Library? It was like super, super popular. I really need to because that is so popular. It is really good. So he's the same author. Um, and The Humans, I actually, I found it because... And I could say this because I it will all be revealed by the time this podcast is out because I'm I'm secret like I'm keeping my teen and tween book club selections a secret so I can reveal them one at a time to add some excitement I love about that. it. Um, but we are gonna read Your Inner Fish by Neil Shubin, which is just he is a paleontologist and a professor of anatomy, and he's talking about like the human body and how it developed and how evolution impacted it and that we have like the same what what is an example here um by examining fossils in dna he shows us that our hands actually resemble fish fins and our heads are organized like long extinct jawless fish um and so just like all this really interesting like so a very physical look at like why human bodies are the way they are and i was like okay but i like to pair my nonfiction selections with a fiction selection and I was like, okay, so what can I what can I pair this with? And I was trying to Google some stuff, and I found Matt Haig's book, The Humans, as a suggestion with some of the stuff I was searching for. But I knew that um, the Midnight Library is kind of heavy because it's it's about suicide, and so I was like, mm, I don't know, I don't want to put this on for a teen book club until I've read it. So I picked something else instead, and it wasn't a real good fit. But then I read The Human so quickly because I loved it so much that I was able to finish it. And I was like, no, I'm going to go ahead and put this on the list. And so The Humans is uh, the, a mathematics professor has made a discovery that, um, ha that threatens the state of the cosmos because it will allow humans to get like intergalactic space travel and really, really up their technology. So an alien from a far distant galaxy has been sent. First, he they kill the math professor and he is embodying the math professor's body and has to like make sure that he kills anyone who knows that this man made this discovery. And in doing so, he starts with like this understanding of humans as like almost kind of like a pest, like a locust, like they destroy everything. Um, and then as he keeps having to be a human to do his job, he like really, he, he starts to make the argument. He's like, well, there's actually a lot more to them than what you think. And, you know, maybe sometimes they do bad things, but they also have all the, like, it just, it's a look at like, how, how, do you, how are humans the way that they are? And how, and I just think it's, it's like nice to have this very scientific, like, this is what our bodies are. And then like, what if aliens looked at how we behaved? What would they think? And that's so, that's an amazing pairing. Yeah. No, that's cool. Okay, are you ready for? I'm ready. Pop culture. I have been wanting to talk to you about this since I did it, but I couldn't because I'm like, I'm going to do it on the podcast. Oh yeah, you texted me like, and then I built it up in my head, and I'm like, well, I actually don't know how interesting this is, or if you'll be interested in it. I was fascinated, and I don't really have anything planned to talk about. I was just like, Michelle will ask me so many questions, and I'll be so interested. <laughs> And I don't know. I do have it's some a lot things, of pressure. You're like putting a lot of pressure no, on me. All right, I feel all right. like it's some pressure on <laughs> me. But if you don't have questions or you're not interested, I have a few things I can say. 
But have you ever watched Antiques Roadshow on PBS? I have seen a few isolated episodes. I don't I don't know it well, but like I, I know the concept and I've seen it a few times. Yes. What your answer was is what I'm realizing is the norm of most people that I interact with in my household where we were really only allowed to watch PBS. My whole family would watch it together like every night. There was a period of time where that's we were just as a family coming together. We all had our favorite appraisers and it was like just we were fans. And I think that difference is why I care so much about this, but it's still cool. So Antiques Roadshow, I heard a few months ago, was I'm currently in Durham, North Carolina, and Raleigh, North Carolina is very close to that. And I heard that Antiques Roadshow was coming to the North Carolina Museum of Art in Raleigh to film an episode. And you could get enter a lottery to get tickets because they don't sell tickets. You could enter the lottery. So I went to do it and realized I had missed the date for the lottery by two days. Oh, I was so sad. And that's my pop culture. No, I'm joking. Um, but then an email and they were asking for volunteers to work the roadshow and we signed up and we got to be volunteers which is so that's much way better, better. Than just going. that's way better than just going it was the best we got a free hat we got a free t-shirt because we had to wear them so that we could say we were volunteers but i will say it was very good hat and t-shirt to where we had people coming up to us all day being like can we buy merch where can we buy stuff like yours and we got to be you can't buy it can't. you work for this it is, this is priceless yeah, so um, I'm such a huge fangirl of this show. We had a day, we had like three hours the day before where we had to train. And then it was from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. It was just one of the coolest experiences. We got to see behind the scenes of everything, right? Because we were helping with production. We were helping sign people in. My major role was once people had kind of signed in, I had to escort them to the various booths like they would bring their items in they were like pre-appraisers they would very quickly assess what they had and say it's this category this category this category so they'd broken it down into like paintings and sculpture prints photographs instruments jewelry collectibles memorabilia sports um folk art asian art and so we had to memorize the map of where everything was and just take them to that place and the Antiques Roadshow was very big on having everyone have a great experience. And so we had to like engage with everyone and talk with everyone, except we were not allowed to touch their items at all because of liability reasons, which got very hard. There are people who were bringing in giant things, like stuff was falling off. And, but the hardest thing was that we weren't allowed to say anything about their items. We could ask, so what did you bring? But we couldn't say anything because it might be interpreted as a promise of value. Yeah. Now, I'm an art historian. And sometimes that was hard for me because I was, people brought in stuff I was genuinely excited about. Best moment of the Antiques Roadshow for me was a really nice couple, married couple, probably in their 70s or 80s came in and the husband was waiting for his wife to check in and I was talking to him and I said oh what did you bring he said I brought some paintings he said when I was in high school a friend of mine took me on a road trip 
And I said, where are we going? And he said, we're going to go see an artist. And I thought he was crazy. And he drove me to the middle of nowhere out to this old ramshackle house. And on the front porch was a fully working Coca-Cola machine. And we went in and said, can we buy some art? And the artist bought us a Coke off our Coca-Cola machine and sold me four paintings for $20. And I said, oh, that's really great. That's that's like, I said, that story is like such a like cinematic story. I can picture it. Thank you for telling me that. And then I showed them to their booth. And I said again, like, thank you for sharing that with me. That was really cool. And he said, he hadn't said who the artist was. And he said, well, do you want to see one? And I, I really did. And so I just shook my head. Yes, I didn't say anything about it. And he opens up the painting and it's Clementine Hunter, which you may not have heard of, but is my favorite folk artist. And the, we've talked about this on the podcast that the term like folk artist is problematic. Outsider artist is even more problematic. She is hands down my number one, if you're going to categorize it that way, folk artist. But she's one of my favorite artists and painters of all time. And I first saw her work because Crystal Bridges in Arkansas had an entire show dedicated to her and her work is amazing. And this person just had like four Clementine Hunter paintings that he had bought off her and my jaw just dropped. And I wanted to tell him all of that. I wanted to tell him, can I please have this? Can I buy this from you? Um, and it was amazing. And I just, I'm just going to say that the episode is going to air in January. It's going to be three episodes in Raleigh. And if he doesn't make it on television, the folk artist appraisers should be very ashamed of themselves because <laughs> that was like a gem of a gem. I saw some other interesting things like Civil War. There was a surprising amount of Civil War veterans' wooden legs. A lot of people had those. Huh. It kind of got to be like, saints relics where i was like is it though right but but that was just so amazing the other thing i'll stop prattling but the other thing was i learned that the appraisers who are kind of right the the stars of it and it was fun being there because there were clearly appraisers that people liked more than others and there was one appraiser who wears fancy suits and he could not go to the bathroom without 10 people being like can i please take a photo with you but i did not know that they do it for free. Most everyone that works for Roadshow travels all over the country with Roadshow and nobody, um, none of the appraisers, I mean, get paid anything. It's all volunteer. Huh. It is good advertisement. They Most of them own, right, like auction houses or their own antique stores or appraisal shops, but they just, yeah, they do it for publicity, but it's a lot of work. Yeah, like just I mean, just the travel alone is yeah, really time consuming. So you didn't get to see the results. Like you didn't get to see like what ended up with the big appraisal or what. We kind of, there were things they had, Um, whenever every, when the people who won the lottery and got to bring items, you had to fill out a form to say what you were bringing. So they could kind of production. It just was such a well-oiled machine. So production could kind of see if there was anything they definitely knew they wanted to film. And those people that kind of gave VIP tickets and they came in an hour before everyone else. So if there was, if it was what they said it was, they could immediately start filming them. But then there were like about three different camera crews that were just moving the whole time. And it was very fun to see that people waiting in line 
every now and then the camera crew would just descend on somebody because clearly they saw like one of the appraisers went like boop boop or they yeah. saw it and you could see like so there's like, some things Shh. yeah <laughs> and it was caused such an excitement and so I I think I'm like very positive about like two or three things that will make it on but yeah most of it I just don't know what it will look I, like I'm really interested to hear your experience of watching it like of yes. seeing it go from like you in this backstage thing and seeing the production part to like how does it become this polished product that you were kind of like part of but not getting to make any decisions about how I just I think that's a really fascinating process so it was so cool it was so cool to learn how the sausage gets made and that it's like good sausage yeah like I was gonna say it, ethically I could see like being a fan of something and getting to go back and be like oh this has been ruined for me forever so the fact that it wasn't is yeah like there's one fast food restaurant that I worked at as a teen that I will never eat it again and there's another one I still can so it's like that right like <laughs> exactly exactly you can feel good not that I think it was in too much doubt if like PBS yeah, antiques PBS. Show, yeah but yeah just in case you were worried, everyone is lovely. And um, they gave us really good food for lunch. And it was and nice great. and unbuyable merch. But I Not do have very good, very cool polo. I we especially love noon. like, oh, I missed the deadline to try to get on. And then yeah. No, it was great being about it just also I'll leave this takeaway message that like, yeah, being of every time I've ever volunteered for something, it's been a wonderful experience and they're so happy to have you. And if you can find something you already like love and volunteer for it, oh, it's the best. It's just the best. So yeah, I was really stoked. What a fun pop culture. So what is your research? So I, my research thing is um, very short and lazy, but intentionally so, because. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh. I could not think of a research thing. And I wanted. Maybe it's for the to, same reason. I'm... I wanted to think of a way to be like, to really make it have to be do your own research. Like that was part of it. And I couldn't. So, <laughs> so I was here today with enough time to sufficiently find and do research on a research thing. So I had time to do a research thing today, um, but I have spent the whole week grading papers in full paper grading frenzy mode, which you know what that's like. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. your, your yes. brain kind of starts to like twitch i don't know it's it's a it's a very specific experience when you are like just no, in it full is on... like, it's like um when you're in muscle failure right like when yeah. you hear your exercise instructor be like you want to shake you want to twitch because then it's growing except i don't think it's growing mm -hmm. i think you're just burning it's it just out breaking. and it doesn't get bigger yeah 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 um and I love, my students did an amazing job. Like I, I had fantastic papers. I saved some of them as a treat. Cause like my, my students who took the Vonnegut class did projects that were so good that I was like, okay. Like I was late turning them back in. Cause I was like, okay, I'm going to use these to like, whenever I'm starting to feel burnt out on grading, I'm like, oh, but I have one of those. Um, <laughs> and it, I mean, it's just because there's so many at the same time at the end of the semester, yeah. like none, nothing that I did was unpleasant to do. But I mean, like if you had to eat 500 bowls of ice cream 
even if it's your favorite flavor of ice cream, you're going to start to be like, oh, my, another bite. Even if it's bring, tiny. Bring me the tiny spoon. Even if it's, yeah, <laughs> tiny little bowls of gelato, you still don't want a hundred. No, no, no. So. Um, and there's no way to avoid it, right? Like right. you can't give one class to be like, hey, this is going to be due three weeks before everyone else and peace out. No. And there's just not enough because I do have a lot of control over my schedule as an independent teacher, but like I want them to have time to develop their ideas. And so yeah. I have like some classes that end in the middle of the semester, but then I have all the, it's just, I haven't found any way around the end of it just being a slog through a ton of final papers. And so I did that and I'm done and I'm very happy to be done. Um, but it has left me feeling kind of like there's also this like after effect of like when you have this giant thing to do and you get through it and then you're like, what is my life? What am I doing now? Where are my pillars? What is the point? And it it is particularly strange because this is Thursday and I am leaving for vacation with you on Sunday. Um, and so I'm like, I don't want to start like another big project. I don't like what, so I'm in this like weird, like lame duck session of my life between <laughs> finishing up this giant project that I knew was going to take a lot of energy and time and effort and not being on vacation, but feeling like I should be. And so there's just this space. So my research thing is a very brief, just overview of three articles that I found about the history of the vacation. I did some research, some brief vacation-y research on the history of the vacation, starting with an old episode from All Things Considered from 2009, where they spoke with Cindy Aaron. That is an idea about a book called Working at Play, is, is the book that Miss Cindy Aaron wrote. Um, and it looks at the history of the vacation, in particular, how Americans' Puritan roots made it hard to have vacations because as Puritans, they worked six days a week and the seventh day was all about sitting in church, listening to how terrible it is to be idle. And so idleness was like this terrible, horrible thing. Um, but then they started to, one, people were just burning out. And so by like the 1850s, doctors were like, yeah, maybe need to chill a bit. Um, but also they started to realize that like there was a whole big marketing potential to sell vacations yeah. to people. And so there was this huge push for going to places like Martha's Vineyard and the Delaware Shore. And there were all these resorts founded there, but the resorts had huge religious ties because people were scared to go on vacation because they thought that they were going to be um, tempted by all these things that they had been taught to avoid. And so they there were these Methodist campgrounds that became religious resorts so that people would know that they were going to a place that shared their values. And so there would be like no alcohol and there wouldn't be risks of sexual encounters and they would be able to maintain their discipline. Um, um, and so the the lack of temptations in the in the these resort towns were were part of their draw and they were very much deliberately created that way through the religious associations with them. Um, and then there's also a quote from here that Europeans say you Americans go on vacation so that you can go back and work and Europeans go on vacation or go to work so we can go on vacation. And I thought that was just yeah. kind of a fun way of looking at it. And yeah, so there's there's th that. So first I learned about that. And then I read this article from the Smithsonian about, uh, so it ties in really well, but it is about a specific 
person in the mid 19th century. So this was the spring of 1869. There was a young preacher named William H.H. Murray, and he went to upstate New York to the um, mountains and published this basically how-to book called Adventures in the Wilderness. Um, and it was all about how wonderful and pristine the wilderness of the, what are the mountains called up there? The Adirondacks? Adirondacks. How wonderful the Adirondacks were and how everybody should go there. And it was kind of like, you know, how everybody wanted to go hike the Pacific Crest Trail after Cheryl Strayed published that book, Wild. Yes. It was like all, so, so that happened. Like it, it caused a frenzy and everybody was like, let's go, let's go camping. So the shout out, shout out to my dad who once did do the Adirondack Trail. Really? Friends. Yep. He hiked it. The whole thing, I think. Hopefully you can went... call in and correct me, Dad, if, if that's not true. It wasn't the whole thing. I'm gonna say my dad hiked all of the Adirondacks in very short 70s short shorts. So I'm planning my 40th birthday, which is two years away. I want to do one of those end-to-end hikes, I think, in the Pacific Northwest. So yeah. I need to get in better shape. I'm, I'm on my way, but need to be in better shape before I throw myself out into the woods. It's an endurance thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So one modern historian said that it was like hungry trout on a mayfly feeding frenzy that all these people packed themselves into the Adirondacks. Um, But they were not prepared. They were not dressed for it. They had not brought the gear for it. And it was a particularly bad time to go. Um, It was one of the wettest and coldest summers. And so... (laughs) I'll just I'll read this portion from it. These Gilded Age city slickers got lost only a few yards from their camps, overturned their canoes, and became terrified by deer or bear tracks. A late winter meant that black flies, a biting scourge in the Adirondacks every June, persisted well into August, and clouds of mosquitoes turned many campers into raw skin wretches. The few rustic inns in the area, which had previously only catered to a few gentlemen hunters, were overwhelmed. One hotel became so crowded that the rapacious owner charged by the hour for guests to sleep on the pool table. Locals with no experience hired themselves out as guides to the city roofs, adding to the chaos by leading their groups astray and camping in dismal swamps. So it was not was not a good experience. And the newspapers ran with like they started calling them Murray's fools for for following this advice. And everybody was like, you're ridiculous. Um, And then Murray was called out for being too democratic because he let women go into the woods. And they were like, let's keep the ladies out of the woods. And so he defended himself. He's like, look, like they didn't listen to me. I told them what to bring. I told them how to prepare. I wrote a how-to manual and they didn't do the how-to part. Um, And and he's like, I'm right. This is going to be a huge industry. Like people are going to want to get away from the city. People are going to want to vacation. And you mark my words. And of course he was right. That it became a very popular tourist destination. Um, and I just, I think that that's kind of cool. And it has that tie in because he was, you know, he, he was a pastor. And so that like connection yeah. of like, that's a lot of what pushed the, the mental turn in American culture was the pastor saying it was okay to relax and rest. Um, that's nice. That- Cause there's such a, and then it is linked to hiking and being out in wilderness because there's such a tradition in western philosophy right of all the philosophers being like i have to hike up a mountain to think 
Yeah. So, yeah, that's. And then finally, I just wanted to talk about this Headspace article that I found called The Right Types and Links of Vacations to Keep You Refreshed. Because I think it's really interesting that we were talking about how there's this capitalist bent to the American concept of a vacation that it's like, you just need to go recharge so you can get back to what really matters and i mean of course we all know and this has some stats in it but we all know that like a lot of americans don't take their vacation days um also i learned in this research that you know the europeans use the term holiday for what we call a vacation and our term vacation comes from the idea that you are vacating your house so like the to vacate Which I think is really interesting because that has a very different feel to it, right? Like you vacate a house, it's almost like you're being evicted for something like, like, yeah. And but you want to get back to it, right? Like if you've been vacated, you're like, okay, I have to go spend my time out here, but I'm going back to what I really want to be doing. You're you're forced out of work instead of forced back into work. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And so I just, I thought that this was interesting, this discussion of like, I'm mostly interested in it, not because I don't think it's true or accurate, but just that the frame for it is about like, well, you need to take a vacation so that you can be your most productive. And if you don't take some breaks, then you're going to have a hard time keeping your creative ideas flowing. And it is all framed as like this temporary state that you do so that you can go back to the work that is the primary state. That's the normal state. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, yeah. like hol- holiday implies the pleasure is in getting away from it and instead of returning to it. Yeah. Vacating. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Um, oh, and I would, I will also say that I have been thinking about taking a solo vacation. Um, like just, myself i think i might go to indianapolis and go to the kurt vonnegut museum yes um and so i was looking at these like tiny cabins these like little mini cabins and i looked at one of them and now my entire facebook feed is just full of these bajillion like all these tiny cabins all across the united states and it's fascinating to me because like the just the marketing of them is really interesting because they're i mean they're basically like not even one room things right like a lot of them don't even have bathrooms like you still it's like a campground like where there's a bathroom in the campground but like the individual like cabin doesn't have one um but the way that they like talk about like glamping and luxury and it's just really interesting to me the the way that we frame these experiences okay you're up I did the research, but this was going to be a weird thing. And then I, if my weird thing seemed a little thin, it's because I turned my weird thing into research, but it is interesting to me. So for reasons I cannot go into and will not go into, who I recently re-remembered, was reminded of, I guess that's (laughs) re-remembered. I'm clearly lame duck vacation mode. Reminded (laughs) is that word. Um. Of one of my favorite pieces of weirdness slash research now. Um, no, I, my just a little like, you know, you pick up little stones of culture and you put them in your pocket and they stick with you forever. And it was so cool to see out in the world someone else like knowing about this and using it. But I'm not going to talk about why. I'm just going to tell you about the thing. So have you ever heard of the euthanasia coaster? No. No. Okay. 
I don't know where I heard about it or when, but I did because when I recently saw this come up, I was like, I know what this is. This is a real thing. And um, no one believed me. So I did my research. Um, It's a conceptual thing. This has not been made, but the euthanasia coaster, coaster as in roller coaster, was a concept conceived in 2010 and made into a scale model. So it exists as a scale model and an idea that would definitely work by a Lithuanian artist, Yuyonis Urbanis, who is a PhD candidate at the Royal College of Art in London. When he was younger, he worked in an amusement park and he had this idea, this conceptual art piece that he wanted to make a roller coaster to kill people. And why did he want to do that? Uh, That's what my research is in part. So first, let's get into what this is and how it works. And the science behind it is real. You could make a euthanasia coaster. It's a hypothetic death machine in the form of a roller coaster engineered to humanely elegance and euphoria Take the life of a human being. That's the artist statement. Basically, the roller coaster starts with a steep angled lift, like most roller coasters do, and it takes riders up about 1,600 feet. Now, right now, the tallest roller coaster in the world is the King Ka, which is 456 feet. So a lot so the highest, taller. A lot taller. Again, like I said not last week, not a math scientist, but that's all that's a little less than four times as much, more than three times as much. So you do this very high climb, and then from there, it's a 1600 foot drop. So an equal drop down would take it 360 kilometers or 220 miles per hour, close to its terminal velocity before flattening out and speeding into the first of seven slightly clotoid inversions and each inversion would have a smaller diameter than the one before so right it looks like a curly cue this specific design basically would kill its passengers you would not get enough oxygen to your brain in a very specific way that you would die painlessly and fairly quickly boom technically it's a cerebral hypoxia is what you would die of you're on a fun roller coaster you kind of start to pass out you do you die that's a horrific thing. It sounds horrific. And like, yeah, why that's would you like, do this? That's like the, the. I mean, obviously, since it's painless and quick, there, there are worse ways that I could think of going out. But like, that's not how I want my final, like, it would not be fun to be on a roller coaster. I don't want my final moments to be like, this is horrible. This is horrible. And then I'm dead. Yes, exactly. Um, Yeah. And basically, yeah, the idea was that he he was thinking about like, what are ethical, what are painless and like, kind ways for someone to die if you wanted to commit euthanasia and because he had worked on roller coasters he was really interested in how those worked and like when people got sick on them and he just was like yeah this is possible and for him he thought it was the best way to die more interestingly the reason he kind of tried to prove out the science on this was when he was researching roller coasters he found out he was not the first person to think of this on allen who served as president of Philadelphia Toboggan Company, and he inspired Urbanus, the artist, with his description of the ultimate roller coaster. And he said, John Allen, that the ultimate roller coaster is one that, quote, sends out 24 people and they all come back dead. Now, not the ultimate euthanasia coaster. He just says the best roller coaster would kill 24 people at a time. 
who is this man? Please Why just is he tell me he's this? not like the designer of roller coasters across America. He was the preeminent designer of roller coasters in the U.S. Pretty much the biggest and most important designer of roller coasters the U.S. and the world have this ever is known. Way worse than continuing to rent out ice cream shops to a guy who's not going to pay his rent. Oh my goodness. I know. Yeah, he was born in 1907. He died in 1979. On a roller coaster? Unfortunately, no. That would have been really great. They should have at least put his casket on one and yeah. been like, wee, but they did not. Um, he once said, you don't need a degree in engineering to design roller coasters. You need a degree in psychology. So. No, I want an engineer designing my roller coasters. Yeah. Please. Yeah. So Alan himself has put, has he did design and put into practice over 25 non-lethal roller coasters. Much and to his he, chagrin. Right. He's like, darn it, I just keep trying and it doesn't work. He died in 1979 at the age of 72. Many of his roller coasters are still in operation today. Which should, it makes me nervous. Mm-hmm. This man who wanted roller coasters to kill people and is... It and, doesn't think an engineer needs to be involved. It's, and stop making roller coasters in 76. And there's, I mean, people update roller coasters, but how updated can you get? Some of his roller coasters that he designed, and he did a lot of them, include the Great American Scream Machine. And when it opened at Six Flags Over Georgia, it was the longest, tallest, fastest roller coaster in the world. And he also designed the Screaming Eagle at Six Flags St. Louis. And I hope Screaming everyone Eagle heard. Screaming Eagle is terrifying. I hope everyone heard Michelle's gasp because that's what I feel about the Screaming Eagle. It's a scary roller it, coaster. It feels like the early part of a car accident just right? over and over and over again. You, Yeah. You you're have like, neck you're pain? Like, yeah. You're like thrown back and forth into the sides and like then it jerks you forward, jerks you back. Like it's just... And, um, but it is kind of like, if you grew up in the area we did, that was one of the biggest roller coasters. And the Screaming Eagle at Six Flags St. Louis was designated by the American coaster enthusiasts. Yeah, they exist. The ACE, American Coaster Enthusiast Society. Um, They have named it a heritage roller coaster. And last year, it was ranked the 38th best in the world by them. Did, did they last believe year. that people should be alive when they get off the end of the roller coasters? I mean... Is it in their really, mission statement? They do have a mission statement, Michelle. And they have very specific guidelines for who they can award awards to. Like, like it's... And they're so serious that they have actually rescinded many of their awards. Because they felt that the roller coaster didn't live up to it. Or like went against their beliefs as a roller coaster so the ace is very very serious so i'm interested in the euthanasia coaster i learned about john allen he's interesting then i just learned that there's a whole society dedicated to roller coasters that was interesting um and i didn't do enough research into them but boy they are they've been around since the 60s at least and are very serious people if you're interested in the ace a quick quick overview is that it is a nonprofit organization that focuses on quote the knowledge enjoyment and preservation of roller coasters as well as recognition of some as architectural and engineering landmarks so dues paying members if you pay your dues you do get the magazine roller coaster 
exclamation point, which is a quarterly publication, and you get access to the bi-monthly newsletter, ACE News. I will also say, though, I don't like The Screaming Eagle at Six Flags. I did like Batman the Ride. That was a good roller coaster, I thought. I never went on Michelle's it. Michelle's like, no. Mm-hmm. No. It's it's one, if no one has been on it that's listening, your, your feet, feet are hang. free. Yeah, no, I'm not. Yeah. Nope. That won it. the Coaster Landmark Award in 2005. So a lot of award-winning lo- roller coasters in St. Louis. But back to the Toboggan Company. Um so the company, the Pennsylvania Toboggan Company that John Allen worked at, is one of the oldest roller coaster companies in existence. And it was founded in 1904. But when Allen retired, he was the president. He was an engineer and a designer, and he got promoted to president. When he retired as president, they stopped designing roller coasters. Like They were like, we can't do it without him. And then manufactured them. And then in 1979, the year he died, they shuttered the company completely and changed it over to producing skee-ball games and arcade games. How is it the oldest company in existence? In 1991, it was sold to someone else and they make roller coasters now to this day. So I don't know how much this feels like Antiques Roadshow. I don't know how much anyone cares about roller coasters, but I was going to do my research if I was going to do my research on this. Basically, there is a the ACE and others I did find have a conspiracy theory about roller coaster companies that people are trying to uncover and the Internet gets weird about it. And I looked for a second and said, nah, the water's too cold for me. But I will read you part of this article by Eric Woolley from 2020, which is called How Every Modern Roller Coaster company traces back to one company. But amazingly, all of these coaster companies, about a dozen roller coaster companies, relate to each other because it all starts with one coaster company and then designers or engineers from that branched out. And it's basically roller coasters are a family tree. That the three today started from one, engineers from that and designers broke out into other ones, broke out into other ones, and then they kind of conglomerated into these three which is interesting. And the one they started from was the Pennsylvania Toboggan Company. So it all stems back to this person who wanted roller coasters to kill kill you. I thought maybe the history of roller coasters would be super interesting. Like what was the first roller coaster? But it's, it's, it makes sense. Like the oldest roller coasters are thought to have originated um, in Russia, particularly St. Petersburg. And basically people would, slide down icy mountains and that's fun everyone goes sledding so roller coasters kind of started from sledding which i guess is the toboggan company connection too maybe but um eventually in the 17th century they would manufacture like they would carve away into the mountain slides that had like specific track yeah yeah so people think that's kind of the first roller coaster um and they built up wooden supports eventually the AC is very, very adamant that you do not confuse roller coasters with scenic railways when you're looking at their history. Okay. So okay. They, they don't they don't claim that history as part of what no. they do. Okay. No. But I mean not it is. Yeah. You have, I, <laughs> I think it is. I've been on like scenic cog railways and I don't see how they're that different anyway. 
I don't want the ACE coming after right. me. They're a very powerful group. So the history of roller coasters as we know them today started um, from Walt Disney. So he, in 1959, had the Matterhorn at Disney World, and that was very popular. But it was the Kings Island Racer that started what I, I didn't know this was a thing, but roller coaster people and historians say that the 1970s was like a true heyday of roller coasters. That was the height of roller coasters. Pun intended. Ever. Yes. So, yeah, there was a roller coaster heyday in the 70s. It's never been the same since. I, I got to say, John Allen died in 1979. Seems and connected. And it all just, yeah. But I know maybe everyone's asleep by now or I've done my own euthanasia coaster of boredom. But anyway, I know what you're all asking. I do. I do. If you're still awake and following me, since the euthanasia coaster doesn't exist, what roller coaster does kill the most people? Of course, that's what we're asking. Yeah, that's the question. That's the follow up question from everything I've just told you. Um, I actually did. I took so long with my research and I checked on every single roller coaster John Allen designed, and none of them have ever killed anyone. Oh, so, he never succeeded in his dreams. Nope, not even really injured anyone that wasn't a worker. For some reason, the workers and operators are not counted in death statistics that I could well, find. Well, that's which... capitalism for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> if you want to know the deadliest um, roller coaster... It's not like there's one that's like haunted and kills people again and again, because if there's a major accident, they shut shut it down. down. Yeah. But it was the Big Dipper in England at Battersea Park. So basically that happened May 30th, 1972. 31 people, 31 people didn't die, but um, 31 people climbed aboard and the lift chain prematurely released at the top of the incline. And so the cars went back down the hill, the train derailed, and it killed five people and injured 20 others. Oh, that's so awful. The, it's sad. They were, yeah. But in the aftermath, the park manager and the engineer of the roller coaster were charged and convicted of manslaughter. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it so, was like they hadn't done the proper safety checks or they had... I... Yeah. My research ceased <laughs> But um, it was closed and demolished very yeah. soon after. Um, I thought it was at the time. I wow, my brain was broken when I did this. I thought at the time it was interesting to read to you all the horrific accidents on roller coasters, but they're terrible, and I'm not going to do that. They're terrible. But I will say that one of the deadliest roller coasters, and we're talking like between 1987. Through 2000, which is what the statistics I could get. Um, and that comes from the United States Consumer Product Safety Commission. So 1987 to 2000, there were 51 non-occupational fatalities in the U.S. on roller coasters. So it's pretty rare. Yeah, but you I mean, can like, die. Probably peanut butter killed more people in that salmonella outbreak. Right? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So... When you look at like the most people killed, it's like five and then it goes down and it's just one person killed every now and then. But the boardwalk at Ocean City that you and I would go Mm -hmm. together to as children, um, Jillian's Wonderland Pier there in 1999, 
did kill two people, a roller coaster there. And yeah. That was so, around the time we were there too. I know. It really was. That that's when we would have been going there. I thought this roller coaster thing was really interesting. And now I'm like, Ooh, I don't know. But anyway, that's my research. I'm I think done. it's Let's interesting. I'm especially interested in the Screaming Eagle connection and the fact that this guy was like, engineers don't need to build these things and I hope they all die, um, which I know is not the, yeah. exact, the exact wording, but that's what I'm taking away from it. John Allen said the ultimate roller coaster is one that sends out 24 people and they all come back dead. I just I really want to know the context for that conversation and why anybody was like, yeah, let's let this man build all the roller coasters. This is definitely yeah. a good idea. He believed a lot that they should be like a really moving experience and like psychologically do stuff to you, but not kill but, you. I mean, you don't you don't have any psychology when you're dead. Exactly. <laughs> you know, Michelle, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> no psychology for the dead. Okay. <laughs> So let's recap. We have had no action from the kitties thus far. Uh, yeah, no, they've abandoned the toy. Doesn't look like much is happening. Um, my weird thing was the ice cream saga in St. Louis. Wow, boy, howdy. My weird thing was that there were Crocs and Idiocracy. My pop culture thing was the blog Paleo Future and the collection that kids had from 1988 where they wanted robots to do their homework. And my pop culture thing was that I got to volunteer at the Antiques Room Show. My research thing was lazily the history of the vacation. And my research thing was too hardworking without the results. I liked yours better. <laughs> was um. The euthanasia coaster, which led to the history of John Allen and the history of roller coaster companies and groups and roller coasters. So when you said euthanasia coaster, I was picturing like a drink coaster. And I was like, are we like, like carrying it around in case we need it at a moment's notice? <laughs> like, here I have my euthanasia coaster. I'm like, what is what's happening? <laughs> How would that work? I don't know. Because it's a coaster. Well, and it made me think of like the, you know, they would, they put out like the date rape coasters. So you That's could like That's what I thought of like when this. you said that. Yeah. <laughs> what are we doing? Like, I need it to make sure this you... drink is poisoned. Like, I, I need to make sure it's enough poison <laughs> to kill me. Oh. Well, there you go, Michelle. There's room for you to make a conceptual euthanasia coaster. <laughs> they did. They have started, and I don't think that they're just models. Like, I think there's some in use in is it Switzerland or something. They're like chambers that like just slowly decrease the oxygen so that it's supposed to be a very like painless, peaceful death. And they, they're, huh. they're truly being used for, you know, people who have terminal disease and are. There should be like a way. And I feel like we can always tie Kurt Vonnegut into things and I won't get into that about his short story. I mean, in theory, the euthanasia coaster works the same way, right? That it slowly takes, no, it's very, uh, quickly, very quickly, very quickly takes all the oxygen away, <laughs> but you're on a roller coaster. So that's awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I do think like roller coasters are something you do on vacation. Oh, right. Well, that's like a getaway thing. Okay. So getting away. Well, we had the Crocs and idiocracy, like the prediction of, what would the future look like 
no one will wear these shoes. That goes with the paleo future a bit. I think yeah. Antiques Roadshow is a little bit of that prediction element because like here he was just buying these pictures for somebody for $20 and you know, that what's going to become. There's definitely something about like looking forward and looking backward and just the pure satisfaction, right? There's something when idiocracy got it so wrong, that's satisfying or when the, the, um, what was the name of the preacher who said the Adirondacks are great? And he oh, got yeah, it so right. Yeah. When and, someone gets something right ahead of time, well, that's and the, satisfying. The ice cream people rented their building out thinking like, oh, we're giving this. And then it's very wrong, which isn't satisfying. But I do think that like it's, uh, I, I it's something about the ability to predict the future and Right, because because that's just a complete failure of it. Because you should be able to predict that that person will not pay your rent, his rent to you. That's a failure of just reading the patterns. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I think our, I think our fortune cookie should be some kind of advice about the future, like some kind of like how yeah. to look into the future or not look into the future, like something about that relationship between yourself and your understanding of the future like it's hmm, i want to say something and i don't think this is right it's easy to look back right but it's harder to look forward but that's not it because it's not always easy to look back right like it can be very hard it can be very messy it can be i mean i think that the the family tree of the um yeah of the roller coasters is kind of like oh even when you're looking back at the, these patterns are kind of weird um there's the phrase right history repeats or if you don't pay it's you're doomed to repeat history i should know that saying maybe it's yeah. something like you can't look straight ahead you must look back and forward like is it the Ooh. opposite of all the self-help advice? You can't be in the present moment. You can only be in the past or future. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I don't know. We have to make it catchy. And I feel like there's something about after you went on the Screaming Eagle, you couldn't turn your head because you hurt too much. <laughs> oh, no, the pain. <laughs> the future. Time is a roller coaster. Don't get so rattled. You can't look around. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like it. <laughs> wear your neck brace <laughs> I that's kind of like bring a towel just wear your neck brace wear your neck maybe, brace. maybe we distill it down into just wear your neck brace and then someday when we're looking back on these we won't remember what that means we'll be like what, what was and then that we one? will be we'll be performing the very thing that we're talking about you want to do wear your neck brace yeah wear your neck brace or your neck brace. Yeah. Until next time. <laughs> and once again, I feel like it's fun to end on the note of by the time this comes out, we will be on vacation we'll be together. together. Yeah. So when you're hearing this, just know Michelle and I are in either North or South Carolina having a good time. We are. We're going to have an amazing time. Yep. I am. We're going to find you some ice cream. Very much looking forward to it. <laughs> ice cream that hasn't full of squatters 
<laughs> There's splatters in my ice cream. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, my God.